The following program was made possible by Ward's Lawyers. Find us at wardlegal.ca. Hey, how are you? My name is Denny Greenell. I've been hosting this show for 40 episodes, counting this one. Thanks for being with us. The Vax Pass may present challenges, but it's here, folks, and it's not all bad, of course. Jason Hoare, owner of St. Dave's Diner and the creator of the Breakfast Bowl, my favorite start of day kickoff meal, will kick off our show to discuss this new law, and it is a law. Harry Stoddart is back with lessons learned from this year's Lex, and... I want to make sure I pronounce his name properly. Dominic Troiano? Dominic Troiano. Dominic Troiano. We learn more about the late Dominic Troiano and why Lindsay author Mark Doble felt the story of the esteemed musician had to be told via a new biography. Paulette Sapasi didn't just return home to Janetville. She left Toronto for a fairy tale like house from her youth and took on a major real life reno. That's all coming up on episode 40 of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. Call it what you want, immunization record, vax pass, proof of the jab, or if you're in Alberta, a restriction exemption program certificate. Yeah, that just rolls off the tongue, don't it? But as of last week, we now need proof that we are fully vaccinated against, you know what, if you want to do a few things, chief among them, eat in a restaurant. Now that's easy for us as customers, really. You know, show your proof, thank the person at the door, then you sit down and dine inside. Our job is easy. But what about the people who run the restaurant? Not just the owners, but the staff whose job it is to verify these proof things. Jason Hoare is the owner of St. Dave's Diner just south of Lindsay. I am seated across from him inside his restaurant here on Highway 35. Jason, first of all, thanks so much for making the time for us. No problem, my pleasure. Okay, let's go back to before the passport, uh, and let's call it that a passport because it seems to be the easiest moniker. What was the mood in here for you and your staff when you had to enforce all those other measures that were in place, the masking and the distancing, all that stuff? 90% plus, uh, it's been real, no real change. You know, you have your mask, you don't, here's one. Business as usual. 10% or, or even less, um, that has made it difficult. Um, with the passport, uh, my staff didn't want to come into work, to be completely honest. They're not bouncers. Uh, they didn't feel like they should be yeah, looking at people's personal stuff, their health, whatnot. Um, but I have a good crew, of course, they've showed up. Um, but so take me, that, take, take me to that first day then, because we're into this now. Mm -hmm. So what, what was that first morning like when you swung open those doors? Uh, we turned probably for the first two hours, everybody away. Everybody had forgotten, didn't have it, uh, knew. So and it's limited to where you need it. I find that the bulk of our customers only need it to dine in. Um, they don't go to a gym, they don't go to concerts and other uh, very select venues. Um, so, so when they do come out, they're, oh, right, sorry, you know, but we can't let them in without it. It's like going to a bar without ID. And we have been extremely pleasantly surprised. We haven't had the confrontations we've expected or have had prior to it. Does that surprise you? Yeah, oh, yes. Uh, we had a sign up on our board in-house chalkboard uh, saying, uh, coming September 22nd, these are the policies we will be following, uh, just as a heads up. Uh, that sign lasted for two hours and we had to erase it because we had so many customers arguing um, and it wasn't about being vaccinated or not being vaccinated. It was that they felt the company was making a choice to 
not support everybody, but just the, the select vaccinated uh, individuals, and had even said that they won't be coming back if we are prejudiced. We're not. We're not. We're not prejudiced against anybody. We just follow what we're told to do by the government. None of us here are scientists. We follow them, you know, in our food prep and every every other rule or regulation that has ever come out. We follow. Um, it's interesting that you lump it in together because I think that's I think that's is. a fair assessment. It's all about safety protocols. Absolutely, be it, be it cleaning uh, your utensils. So, I, so how do, how do you explain? How do you impart that to the people? I find that actually there is no explanation because either the individual is oh of course sorry, and and that's it. Do you, do you provide takeout? Sure. You know here you go. You can take it on the road. You can have it on our tables out front. And the other ones that maybe do need an explanation are so hot-headed that th there's no getting to that point. It's just, it bubbles over, it gets loud, and there, there, there's no point. I just tell them there's no debate, we follow the rules, I'm, I'm sorry, you know. As an individual, it's a choice whether you get it or not. As a company, um, when I'm told a new law, a new mandate or whatever, we just simply follow it. It's not a choice, this is what I was told to do. This is what we do. This is how we comply. And this is the law. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah, there's, no, there's no decision for the company as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's the law. We follow it. We follow every other one. Why would we pick and choose you know, not to follow this one? Whether personally I agree with it or not it is irrelevant. Our staff, they are the heart of this engine. Like, I mean... Um, and they're on the front line sometimes. Absolutely. So, so absolutely. What, so what has their response been when they're having to ask for, um, for, for the passports? How, how did they negotiate that they they uh, they gave me the lead uh on you know for the first bit but it's pretty straightforward it's pretty simple i mean you produce your papers we check that you got your second dose we checked that it was over 14 days ago we match your name up uh to a, some type of form of id easy peasy really and they're cool with it the yeah staff? I yep think okay. yep they've taken it and like i say though we haven't had what we thought we were going to have we we I, and i mean i'm going to knock on wood because you know it's still a long for what I see, long way to go with this passport. The QR codes aren't coming out to the 22nd of October. They're not going to be dumping the money in and the time in to create those just to trash it, uh, you know, shortly after. Right. I figure at least till spring. I did request an interview from the police service here in Kortha Lakes about how they can and would police this, and they pointed me to a news release which states, and I'm going to read it here, while we will not be conducting proactive compliance checks on vaccination passports, we will respond as needed to keep the peace under the new rules. What are your thoughts when, when you hear that from our police service? Uh, is there to, comfort? Is there? To be honest, uh, yeah, a little. When the passports first came out, we had heard of a place in Toronto. I write customer, whatever. Staff was trying to deal with it. Other customers had gotten involved. Uh, this individual just wasn't leaving. Yes, I'm, I, I cannot stress enough how terri terrified is a good word. My staff was to come in on those, especially those initial days, and um, ask people for their passport. I, as soon as they announced that's what we had to do, my staff did not stop talking about it. They were calling it World War III and everything else. How are they uh, now, now that we're Now that we're that. five days in, um, they, they are uh, ecstatic that they haven't had any confrontations. They haven't had uh, to, to get into any type of debate because there really isn't a debate as far as we're concerned. Um, I've always said, this is our house, they're our guests. And in as much as, you know, we, we look after and take care of them, they have to do the same for us. They have calmed down, um, but we keep saying and we all keep knocking on wood every time we talk about it because we just feel like it's, it's bound to happen because we have had so much friction over the last 
I'm not even sure what we're in now, 18 months maybe of this stuff. And there, there has, I could give you story after story after story. And just masks. Uh, and then we're like, my God, now we're, we're asking them for papers about their, you know, their personal health and that. This isn't going to go well. And it has. What would you like to tell the patrons out there, Jason, specifically those who may not be exactly on board with this law? What would you like to tell them as, as a restaurant owner? I, nothing. That's their choice. Um, what they choose to do, I, it's your personal freedom. The only thing I would say is, you know, um, respect the others and the ones that you're out with in public. Um, when you're sharing a public space, it's not just about you. It's about everybody that's in the, the, the area. And respect uh, whatever business you're going in and whatever policies they've come up with, even if they're a little bit more than what the government has asked for. They're just trying to make it safe. This place, Jason, uh, that we're sitting in right now, this really is uh, the epitome of a place that caters to regulars. What have you learned about your customers throughout this whole process, especially recently with the passports? <laughs> they have our back. My name is Jason Hoare, owner of St. Dave's Diner in Lindsay, and you are listening to The Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. Thank you so much for checking us out and your continued support, which you're doing right by subscribing to us for free on Spotify and or Apple Podcasts. That way, episodes just magically appear in your phone. I know, right? Cool. Free thanks to our official sponsor, Ward's Lawyers. They have all your legal needs covered via their team of lawyers, whom you can find at wardlegal.ca. We are, of course, part of the Advocate magazine. In the October issue, check out our new environmental column, Cool Tips for a Hot Planet with Ginny Calling. If you're from Janetville, you probably just know it as the doctor's house. Set off the road among some tall, mature trees on five acres, it wouldn't be out of place in a Charlotte Bronte novel. It had fallen into disrepair and needed some, well, love and attention, which is code for lots of work and lots of money. But Paulette Saposi was up to that challenge, leaving a life in Toronto to come home and create Primrose Hill Manor. Paulette is offering tours of the restored mansion on October 16. Tickets and info at eventbrite.ca. But I got to tour the house with Paulette when it was still in its transformation phase to learn about the Victorian era house, but also to learn about Paulette's special connection to it. This is the part of the Italian palazzo, as they would call it. Um, and there's a half door in this sort of... You know, I got it, kind of got sucked into that world of, you know, planes, trains, automobiles. I was on a plane every two or three weeks. I've seen the world. I've seen, I was a professional speaker. I was a, a, in, in sales and business development for the company. So I felt like I had arrived when I was in the city, right? However, when I realized, like, when this house became available or up for sale... Take me to that moment when you found out. Well, a girlfriend of mine, still, uh, who I grew up with, um, she, her family home, is farm is just uh, five minutes away. We used to ride horses together when we were growing up. And she said, the Janetville Mansion's up for sale. And this, that's how it was known as just yeah, the Janetville mansion. The, yeah, because everyone knows it's it's like the gem of the it's the gem of Janetville. I mean, it really is. But when she said the Janetville mansion's up for sale, and I have to say the next part because it really was kind of truthful. She says the Janetville mansion's up for sale, and it's a dump. That's that's the words, but that's the difference between what she saw and what I saw. 
What did you see? I saw the most beautiful corbel, like all the crown moldings and the corbels and all like this, the Italian palazzo and all these things that I saw. I saw the most beautiful estate ever imaginable. I to make sure that with the kitchen that I had myself facing towards the morning light because I'm a morning bird. It is called the doctor's house. It's called the Janetville mansion. Those are names that will forever be part of this home. But when I purchased it, I felt like, you know, I'm a single woman, I'm a single mama, I'm moving from the city back to the country to this grand, grand home. And I felt like it needed a, a new identity. <laughs> Why? Why did you feel that? I don't know. I just felt like... <sighs> The previous owner was a very quiet gentleman in his 90s. Uh, there were trees that were in the front that were covering the home. No one knew, or unless you lived in the neighborhood, not a lot of people knew of this home. So I feel like the new identity, it's kind of like she deserves a little bit of attention, a little bit of spotlight. And with that, you need a, you need a name. <laughs> Right? And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with the doctor's house or the Janetville's, Janetville mansion, but I felt like I wanted to add a feminine touch to it just because I am a single woman. There are certain elements of the home that are heritage protected. So, obviously, when my great contracting team are in here, they've got to make sure that um, these things are, are taken care of. When you say heritage protected, meaning there are certain things you can and can't do? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, what you can't see on radio, but there's these beautiful red stained glass. Um, you know, there, it's red, but it has some intricate uh, a border around, around the stained glass. And, you know, I just have to think that this is original to the home. So the, so the doors um, with the stained glass inlaid in here, and then there's this, these beautiful sort of almost like floral designs that are part of the border. And that's, that's gorgeous. So when you walk in, and you stand into the into this grand, I call it a grand hallway because I really do think it's quite grand. Um, and then you close the doors, there's this beautiful light that comes through. Maybe it's mesmerizing to me. <laughs> it's mesmerizing to me. I don't know if it is to others, but you know, that's maybe why I bought the home is that I am, I am truly mesmerized. I know what's under all of this, this plastic and I know what's under these floors. And, and what you can't see, Dennis, is that the most beautiful inlaid um, design work in the hardwood, like all of these things are underneath being protected so that when, you know, these, um, this paper is ripped off or the carpets are ripped or, or the, what do you call this? Like the, the, drop, you know, the drop cloths are ripped off. I know what's under there. So, okay. but to me, like when you walk, when I walk into this in, room here, it's just, I feel like I'm it almost feels like a museum in certain, in a certain you're sense. You're right, you're right. And um, the corbels, like this, the, the detail work, the moldings, the windows, everything about the, these two rooms, which is really essentially the living room and the dining room. But I, I'm not going to, it may not be called a living room. I'm going to call this maybe the parlor. You know, or the sitting room. I don't know what they would call this in the Victorian. Can you show me upstairs at all? Of course, of course. So let's just take a look. So uh, this is where the family, the family room is. This is where it's gonna. Wood, the paneling. 
I know. Huh? So I am a family of um, like immigrants. My parents, they both passed away now, but they they were here. Uh, they came in the 50s from the Slovak Republic. And it was my father's dream to own a farm because he grew up in the country out in, in, uh, in Czechoslovakia, as it was called at the time. And uh, when we grew up, we, we 200 acres, just a little bit south of, of this home. And uh, when I was a little girl on, on the bus, um, every single day, I would dream about living here. It's, it, you know, I loved pretty things. And I, you, there was a lot less uh, trees and shrubbery around back in the day, 30 years ago or so. But um, I dreamed of that. Why? Why? It almost seems like a fairy tale house from, well, from a distance. Yeah. What was it that, that drew you into it? I couldn't... Um, you're right. Maybe it's just that, like, the princess kind of thing, right? Like, when you dream about when you're eight, when you're ten, like Barbies and the whole... It, there was just the... Again, the, I, I use the word grandeur, grandeur because I just think... I, I really believe that that word represents this home. As a middle maybe even middle lower class farm kid just up the road here? yeah just up the road like you can't make the connection between you know who you are your identity as a 10 year old girl to actually physically owning a home like this like you just don't make that connection so you kind of tuck, tucked it away in my heart and that was that when you're walking through here paulette do you ever envision what was taking place here 40, 50, 60, oh 100 goodness. years ago? I do. If these walls could talk, honestly, don't you think? Like, wouldn't you just love to know if, if what, what was happening from 1880 all the way to today? What were the stories? What were the mishaps? What were the... Everything. There was just so many, so many things that I... That a house has i get to be like the caretaker of this house i'm at a moment in time so denny it's i haven't seen the stars in 30 years i feel like that's a really a powerful a powerful thing for me to to know that for 30 years i've not seen the stars so if that's not a a statement i don't know what is you're getting right? choked up yeah, yeah, I do. I get really emotional about it. That's, of course, another heritage element of the house, this staircase. So much work. I'm slowly starting to put things together, and the garden terrace is one. It's like, okay, I can see where I'm going to have, like, the west. The sun is going to set here in the west, and I'm going to have a cocktail with my friends, and it's, I'm just going to feel like I'm home. <laughs> If the house were a living, breathing person, and and you seem to be talking to it like that, yeah, I, yeah what I would do. you tell the house? What are you telling this embodiment of so much right now when you talk to it? I, it's more of what I feel she thinks of this, of me, and what I'm doing. I feel like there's this just this big sigh, of like this happy, this happiness, like this, like. <sighs> Like, thank you, because I am, you know, it takes a lot, it takes a lot of effort and love and attention and money to repair walls and to give an old house like this the attention um, 
to detail that it deserves. This is the thing. I'm not a designer. I'm, I have a naturally um, good eye for what I like and what I think is pretty, but I may not know the right verbiage for certain things. So I, I just know that do you think the 10-year-old you would be surprised to see the not 10-year-old you standing in front of me right now, knee-deep, not the princess, knee-deep in, in, in drywall dust and, and, you know, leaning up against uh, crown moldings and, and getting, getting dirty for the house? You know, is it, is it okay to say I wouldn't be surprised? Like, maybe I just felt like this, I, I've always had maybe a little bit of confidence, maybe too much confidence for my own good, but I've always, like, if I put my mind to something, I do it. Call it destiny, call it, you know, whatever it is that you, you know, you just, intentionality, but here I am. <laughs> here I am. Hi, I'm Paulette Sapasi from Primrose Hill Manor in Janetville, Ontario, and you're listening to The Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. If you made it out to this area's biggest fall fair, the Lex, you know that it felt a bit different than usual. I know I felt that, but but then I settled into its pandemic-era incarnation, and I kind of liked it, if I'm being honest. And I was just grateful that it was back. Harry Stoddart is general manager of the Lex. You'll remember my conversation with him before the Lex 2021 took place and how he and his team were preparing. Well, now that it's wrapped up, Harry's had some time to weigh how it all went down this year. He joins me on the line now. Harry, what can you point to as one of the biggest changes this year that you feel worked in your favor? Spreading it out over the 10 days definitely accomplished what we'd hoped to by doing that. We didn't have congestion in the barns, in the horse rings, those types of things. So, you know, social distancing was, was a lot easier to accomplish. The crowds were definitely thinner each day. Uh, we never felt we had the you know real congestion shoulder to shoulder in the in the midway or down uh, the main street. Moving to ten days was absolutely the the right decision. How did the overall numbers look compared to previous years? Uh, the the numbers are are down relative to previous years, um, but that's what we'd planned for. We didn't think that everybody would be comfortable coming back to a. A large event like this given you know this is the the first big event in this community in in the year and a half the numbers weren't down as much as we planned for um so we 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 beat our projections which was the my main goal you mentioned this is one of the biggest uh, events in, in the community and a uh, few people would argue that how i just wonder how much weight that was on your shoulders to to make this happen this year there, there was a tension around that with me my team the board um, it's a large event, so it had the opportunity to do something impactful for the community, but at the same time, the risk of also creating um, significant impact on our on our COVID numbers and spread and that type of thing. So trying to find the balance of um, doing something positive for the community, but also do it responsibly. Um, you know, that was a, a tension that was always there throughout the planning. I should tell you that one of the members on uh, on the Advocate team loved your line about you can't sanitize a rabbit in between pettings. So that's <laughs> that's one of the adjustments you <laughs> yes. had to do. When you take a look back now, and now that you had uh, some time to, to look at it, um, what were the biggest adjustments that 
you had to make that had the biggest impact on the fair itself? The biggest impact was just was the capacity limits. So limiting people going into the, the Commonwealth building, limiting the number of people at the demolition derby and uh, the demo cross, the rodeo, uh, those types of things. It meant new processes for us, you know, selling a, a separate ticket for things. The Sunday night demolition derby at the, the Lex is, is always packed, standing room only. And, uh, you know, this year there was lots of additional seating there. So it didn't quite have the same feel as it uh, normally does, but it shouldn't have had that in, in this type of environment. So mm-hmm. um, it was it was a large impact, but it was absolutely the right decision to make. I got to say, selfishly, having gone into um, some of the barns to see the livestock, and, and I stand like six foot five, I didn't have to stand on tiptoes to see over anybody's head. I kind of liked the idea that that, I would, that, that there weren't that many people shoulder to shoulder who were jockeying for position to, to see some of the uh, uh, some of the attractions. So I'm just wondering if there are, are there any takeaways from this that you might be able to implement um, in future fairs where you know we won't have the strict protocols we are now like something that you're going, hey, you know what? We had to do that, but maybe now we want to do this. So the, the livestock committees really liked being spread out over more more days. Uh, so I have a feeling that that's going to continue in, in some form or another. You know, we're, our dairy show, our numbers jumped by almost 50%, and a lot of that was attributable to being moved from a Saturday night show to a, a Tuesday during the day show. So there's, there's definitely some things from this fair that will continue into the future. Well, a glimmer of hope there, something we were able to draw from. There are yep. still a number of fall fairs scheduled in the area, and granted, they're on a much smaller scale than, than what you're producing. What advice would you, uh, or could you impart to them, given what you've gone through? The main thing is to maintain your flexibility and your ability to adapt and and change, even midstream. We We had to reconfigure some things several times throughout the fair just to to keep ahead of issues that we didn't see coming can you give me an example uh, so on the on the final weekend we had the vaccination clinics and we had a pile of people show up that didn't want to pay to get into the fair but wanted to get their vaccination so we changed our our gate configuration in a way that would allow those people to come in and get vaccinated but not necessarily go into the fair health unit didn't see coming we didn't see coming but uh, we adapted and figured out a way to, to make it happen. And uh, so it's, yeah, just stuff like that. It, uh, it felt like playing a whack-a-mole game at times during <laughs> the fair this year. We definitely uh, spread out the, the midway uh, deliberately to, to try and keep those crowds um, spread out. There were, there were fewer items in, in more area, which it helped. Certainly lots of people enjoyed the, the midway. Do you consider it a success? Absolutely. My name is Linda Williams from Ward's Lawyers and Lindsay, your official sponsor of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Cortha Lakes. Yesterday was our country's first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Locally, the Truth and Reconciliation community Bob Cajun marked this important day just outside the town's library with upward of 100 people in attendance, many of whom wore orange shirts, which serve as a symbol of acknowledging the suffering and the tragic death of our country's residential school survivors. 
I was in that crowd to listen and learn and reflect. Here's some of what was said and heard. So, wow, what a beautiful sight to see so many people here today uh, wearing orange and coming out for a truly historic day. Um, I'm just going to say a tiny bit. So Truth and Reconciliation Community Bob Cajun is, we're, we're a small but mighty group, I like to think. Um, and our, our real focus and our real goal, if you will, is to, to learn ourselves and then to share that learning in the broader community and to foster better relationships um, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. We find ourselves in Bob Cajun, which in the Anishinaabe Moan language means at the shallow rapids. And from the beginning, uh, people uh, lived and, and traveled through these lands and waters. Michi Sagig, Anishinaabe people, people who lives at, at the mouths of the rivers and streams uh, in, a, in a huge territory. In uh, 1818, uh, Treaty 20 was, was signed for this area and later the Williams Treaty. And so, uh, we are all treaty people and we, we stand in this place uh, mindful of, of those things as we gather. Good afternoon everyone and thank you for allowing me to participate in this very important ceremony. It's uh, amazing to see such a great turnout. I'm going to read a poem called The Monster. Some of you have heard it already. It's been recited many times. It's by Dennis Saddleman. I first read this in the House of Commons at the request of Chief Manny Jewell. He was a former chief of Tecumloops, the site on where the Kamloops Residential School was located. He actually called me and we were having a conversation. He was in his office located inside that former residential. Actually, I'm going to call it an institution because it's not a school, a residential institution. I hate you, residential school. I hate you. You're a monster, a huge, hungry monster built with steel bones, built with cement flesh. You're a monster built to devour innocent native children. You're a cold-hearted monster, cold as the cement floors. You have no love, no gentle atmosphere. Your ugly face grooved with red bricks. Your monster eyes glare from grimy windows. Monster eyes so evil. Monster eyes watching, terrified children, cower with shame. I hate you, residential school, I hate you. You're a slimy monster, oozing in the shadows of my past. Go away, leave me alone. You're following me, you're following me wherever I go. You're in my dreams, in my memories. Go away, monster, go away. I hate you. It's time to honor the children and the unrelenting spirit of these ancestors. It's time to drum for the healing of the Indian residential school survivors who carried the burden of knowing where the children were buried and to drum for the healing of the families and communities whose children did not come home. Shoetmak people and elders have said that it is the children that are going to bring us together. We want to make the world a better place for children everywhere and give them hope and assurances that every child matters.
Some very powerful moments there at yesterday's Truth and Reconciliation gathering in Bob Cajun. That poem, as read by our MP Jamie Schmale, was without a doubt one of the most moving moments. That is music by the late Dominic Troiano, the Toronto guitarist and singer-songwriter who died in 1995 of cancer, is known for his solo work and fronting the band Mandela. But he's also performed and recorded with other artists, Ronnie Hawkins, the James Gang, and the Guess Who. Certainly, Troiano achieved some success, especially with a punchy disco-friendly song called We All Need Love. You'll, You'll remember that when you hear it. And he was beloved and well-respected by his peers, including Robbie Robertson and David Foster. Okay, so you may not know of Dominic and his impact on music, especially Canadian music. Lindsay's Mark Doble aims to change that. His biography, Dominic Troiano, His Life in Music, co-authored with Dominic's brother, Frank, is now available for purchase. Well, I sat down with Mark to discuss the book, what drew him to write it, and what drew him to becoming one of Dominic's biggest fans. The Mandala certainly played um, uh, LCVI back in the 60s at least twice. They probably played at the Greenhurst Pavilion as well. They played every high school, every dance um, in, in Southern Ontario for, for a, a period of time. Growing up as a kid, I mean, I, I listened to rock and roll, and I, I and actually I developed a real devotion, I guess, to Canadian rock and roll in the 70s, 60s and 70s. As a fan of the Guess Who, um, all of a sudden they had a personnel change in 1974, and this fellow Dominic Troiano, who I had never heard of at that point in time, uh, came along and joined the band. He was an amazing guitarist. He was only with the band for about two or three years, but being the rather obsessive, completist collector that I was and am, um, I had to find out more about this fellow. When the internet sort of became a, a thing that we got involved with, I, I made contact with a musician who had been working with Dominic Triano. He gave me a mailing address. I thought, I'll write him a letter. Short and sweet, just, hi, how are you? I hope you're doing okay, thinking about you, wondering about these different albums, if they're ever going to be released on CD, what are you up to these days? Just, just a friendly, hi, how are you? He responded back um, within about three weeks. Did that surprise you that he responded at all? I was delighted. On the letterhead, there was a phone number. So one Sunday afternoon, I phoned him. And uh, he answers the phone. And uh, as soon as I tell him my name, he says, oh, yeah, Mark, your letter. I wrote to you there and, and everything. I'd really love to talk to you. Friendly wanted to know about me. 
Um, that's big. That's I gotta say that for an oh, artist to ask about the person who he was far more interested in me than than the other way around. So we got into the practice of I give him a call and he'd scoot down to the hotel I was at. We'd go into the restaurant and um, you'd hang out. We'd hang out and and have dessert and coffee. Oh, he had green tea. He he turned into a real um, naturopath. getting to know him, I was struck by how considerate he was. If he had an album that was being released on CD, he would pick up the phone and call me up. He'd say, Mark, you're going to be interested in this. This is happening. He'd call me up and say, Mark, I'm getting together to jam at the Orbit Room with a couple of guys tomorrow night. Are you interested in coming? He would, he would uh, call me up out of the blue, um, which I was, I felt so honored that he would take the time to do something like that I, because I'm, I'm really nobody in his life but he made me feel um, like uh, you know my, that, that I was important and, and I thought how considered Frank had the, the contacts so he reached out to everybody I mean Eric Clapton Pete Townsend David Clayton Thomas everybody he played with or had some kind of a professional encounter friends family fans uh, the whole uh, he must reach out to about 250 people we got 185 um, submissions or interviews as I started writing this book as we started to receive submissions from over 185 people from all over the world I realized I'm not alone that this is how he treated people. This is, there are very few people, there's a few, but there are very few people who don't absolutely love the guy. Exactly how it feels. Maybe, maybe it's here we'll get an opportunity. Writing a biography about anybody, especially someone you admire, there is always that, um, I don't know if it's a danger, but a challenge in not canonizing that person. Certainly, Dominic, like everybody else, was a flawed person. When it comes right down to it, it I think a lot of uh, a lot of uh, musicians that worked with him would say we were almost intimidated by his intensity. Okay, is that is that a polite way of saying he could be hard to work with at times? He, he could be very demanding. It's interesting to, that Dominic was never in a band where there was another guitarist. He was the only guitarist, and when he was in the band, when he was in the band, he had to be the leader. And when he joined the Guess Who, there were certain conditions. He and Burton would write all the songs. Um, he would get a certain percentage right off the bat. He laid down the groundwork. There are so many people that would say, oh no, he changed my life, I miss him dearly, and all of this. And if we had put all of that in, this would have become such a maudlin uh, thing. And we were very, we tried very hard to, you know, pull that back so that, okay, let, let's talk about your experience with Dominic rather than, you know, we, we don't need to, because it'll, it will still be clear that you have a high regard, but we don't need to be saying this over and over and over and over. Um, we still want to get a sense of the man, but we also had to guard against this becoming a vanity piece. This 
this is the only book that has been written solely about Dominic Trano. I believe that his legacy in Canadian music alone, um, although I think it goes beyond that, but his legacy in Canadian music as a figure who was a mentor, who was an example, who was a great musician, who continually improved, warrants a book. There needed to be a book written about him. It was my goal to write the book that that Dominic would have wanted written about him. My name is Mark Doble from Lindsay, and you're listening to the Advocate Podcast Stories from Kawartha Lakes. you knew that song that is we all need love by the late dominic troiano the well-respected singer songwriter and standout guitar player is the subject of a new biography dominic troiano is life and music with a nice foreword by alex lifeson of rush it is written by dominic's brother frank and Lindsay's own mark doble you can find that book in hard and soft cover via the freezing press and at dominictroiano.ca reasonably priced too i bought one my thanks to mark doble for making the time to speak with me about the book and his friend 
Thanks going out as well to Ward's Lawyers for making this episode and all our episodes possible and available to stream for free. For all your legal needs, they've got you covered. Find them at wardlegal.ca. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter to comment on what you heard and what you'd like to hear. Thanks to Gerald Van Haltern for writing and performing our musical bridges and theme. The Advocate Podcast Stories from Corth Lakes is hosted and produced by me, Denny Grignot. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Be safe. And if you haven't already, join the 80 plus percent who have, will you? Hey, like Dominic Troiano said, we all need love and we could all use a hug. Thank you.